you turn tonight in your Bibles to what I believe is probably the most glass, glass half-empty or glass half-full passage in the entire Bible. It depends on where you are with your walk with the Lord. Some people read this passage uh, here in chapter 7 as we pick up in verse 14. And we'll take down to verse 25 and finish up this chapter before we move on to chapter 8. Some people look at this and they are just undone. And other people look at this passage and they go, thank you, Jesus. Now, I can tell you, I have actually been in both of those places at times in my life to where I'm, wow, what a war. And then there's other times, wow, what a victory. So I hope you're on the victory side tonight. I I am going to pray that I'm able to communicate effectively what I believe the Lord would have for us tonight. But tonight, the believer's battle. And I want to dig into this because this is one of those passages that is fought over. Uh, Entire denominations have been founded on one view of this passage or the other. Uh, our sin nature, where, where is it really at once we become a Christian? Uh, if we have a sin nature at all, can we actually even claim the name of Christ? And there are people on both sides. There are those that would teach that as a Christian, because we have the Holy Spirit in us, that there should be exactly zero sin, and if you have any, that is a sure sign that you're not saved. Uh, If that's true, we should all give up and go home. But there are people that teach that. There are whole denominations that teach that. Consequently, if you fail in even the slightest measure, you need to once again get saved. So for most of you, that means you need to get saved four or five hundred times a day, probably, at least in your mind. And I'm really not trying to mock. I'm trying to help you understand exactly how dangerous that line of thinking could be. And I hope that I can give you a very solid exegesis. In other words, draw out of this text what it exactly says so that you understand that I do not believe that's what this passage means. And I don't believe that the Scriptures actually teach that. But I would say to you that as you look at these things, the first thing that strikes you is in 12 verses, there are 37 personal pronouns. The eyes, the me's, the mys, the myself. And so I believe that on that alone, one could make the very clear case that the Apostle Paul is including himself as he speaks these words. But for those who think that it's an allegory, for those who think it's some form of an idiom, for those who think it's Paul uh, being theoretical or hypothetical, and we'll delve into that tonight. Before we get there, would you join me and let's pray. Father, we have come tonight to hear from heaven. Lord, and and I know for me personally, and I would believe for all of us here, uh, we battle in our minds. That war, it goes on every day. And Lord, some days we're utterly victorious, and other days it seems like we're just really striking out. And so, God, we pray for those that are on that side, Lord, those that haven't had much victory today, that they would realize exactly how great your grace is, that they would seek to live sinless lives, but in those moments of failure, 
that they would find your everlasting arms of grace wrapped around them, holding them close. Pray that you would speak by the truth of your word to our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people all said, Amen. Amen. Verse 14 here in Romans 7. For we, there's the first personal pronoun in this particular group. And again, whenever you're using the term we, you're including yourself. Who's Paul writing to? He's writing to Christians who are Romans. And so we almost assuredly means himself plus all other believers. For we know that the law is spiritual. And that's a truth. The law is spiritual. We've already seen that the law can't save. We've seen that the law actually has no power except to excite sin in us. As we finished up our last study, and again, I encourage you, if you miss any of them, please do go online. Uh, Download the message, make a podcast out of it. It's all free. You can watch the video if you really want to torture yourself. Put it on a big screen. You can do all kinds of things there with those things. But, But see where we've come. The law is spiritual, but I am carnal. There's the next personal pronoun. Sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. Oh, dear Jesus, has that not been most of our heart's cries at times? Has been mine. Lord, why in the world did I say that? Why did I do that? Why I knew better? There was that Holy Spirit check. And boom, out come those words. That moment of weakness where your flesh still resides. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. You can almost hear the agony. You can almost hear the groaning of the Spirit. You can almost hear someone who is just undone. Just like, ah. So upset with himself. I agree with the law that it's good. But now it's no longer I who do it, but the sin who dwells in me. I think it's important to draw our attention back to what we already know. Your body is a body of flesh. And part of your body is your mind. Your mind is flesh. It is still able to be affected by negative thoughts. It's still able to be affected by the enemy. It is still able to be enticed by temptation. Your mind is part of your flesh. You need to lay hold of that truth going forward. Your mind is, in the sense of all the thoughts in there, non-material, but it is still a meat computer. Amen? It's what it is. Your mind can be turned off I can prove that to you if I sever your spinal cord. So it's material in that sense. Your mind is part of your 
flesh. Your spirit is the eternal part of you. Your soul is the cognition of your mind. So your soul is the place where all of that thought happens, but your mind is the thing that causes it to happen. It's all those neurons firing. It's those connections. It's that part that's been drug abused. It's that part that has seen all those thoughts. It is the storage unit of the computer that controls you. And so your mind is carnal. It is not yet fully redeemed. It is controlled by the Spirit of God. But it's still part of the old you, and it's still got capacities that you would rather it did not have. Amen? Amen. Anybody in here ever been tempted? Raise your hands or you're all liars. (laughs) Of course you have. you got things that still tempt you. That's a sign that your mind is still exactly what the Bible declares, carnal. It still has the capacity to think the wrong thing. And when it begins to think the wrong thing, what do you think it can convince your body to do? To do the wrong thing. Got to get this part right. Otherwise, you start on a false premise. It's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. Through that old nature that we have still resident within us in Adam. For I know that in me, that is my flesh... That carnal nature, that old man, that old woman that still can be tempted, nothing good dwells. Now, it doesn't say that there is no capacity to do good. It simply says that that carnal old nature is resident within you, and it is still polluted. It's still carnal. It still is tainted. No matter how good you make your flesh behave, it still has both the capacity and the reality to be bad. In me dwells no good thing. That is my flesh. So when you start to put all these things together, you see that we have a fundamental problem as Christians. Amen? We got a war going on. And it's inside of our minds for the control of the body that we dwell in. For to will is present within me. In other words, you have a battle. You've got your carnal flesh, and yet you've got a new will that's been transformed by God. And so those, those old cartoons back from the 60s and the 70s, where you had the little angel on one shoulder and little devil on the other shoulder, that's kind of sort of accurate, actually. Don't make theology out of it. But over here, hey, Jeff, say this. And over here, Don't do that. You're a child of God. And over here, well, nobody really understands you. Over here, yes, they do. You're a sinner. Anybody ever had that going on? Y'all are bipolar. (laughs) We'll get to that in a minute. You see, in you, in your flesh dwells no good thing. But to will is present within me. But how to perform what is good I do not find. I have the will to do it. I have the understanding of what it is. 
man, there's a stinking war going on. There's a battle. And it rages. I don't find that. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. I I hope we lay hold of these four central truths as we run through this tonight. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. Now, he's not using an escapist mentality there. He's not saying, look, it's really not me. He's saying, it's really not the new me that's doing it. It's not my redeemed part. And for us as believers, that should be the redeemed most. Amen? It's not that. Matter of fact, that's actually incapable of sinning. But that old man... Those old thoughts, that old, in French, garbage. Being as we're in El Salvador, prasura, (laughs) trash, that stuff that's still in there. Every once in a while, that sack of trash wants to be opened. Wants you to peer in there. You hear it crying out from inside. We're still okay. I find in a law, verse 21 says, that evil is present within me. There's a few little lingering, clinging pieces of that old, ugly, grave clothes you used to walk around in that we talked about many months ago. The one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. The redeemed part, the law of God says, yes and amen, thank you. I am redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. In God's grace I stand. Hallelujah, amen, glory. But oh, by the way, I still think dumb things. It's a battle. It's a war. But I see another law in my members the parts of me, warring against the law of my mind. And now you can see the real conflict starting to come into view. Here's this tension. There's this, there's this static tension between these two points. On one hand, you have the redeemed you, the part that is fully capable, ultimately by the power of the Holy Spirit, of being perfect. I want to make that very clear. As a child of God, We actually have, because the Holy Spirit is in us, we do have ultimately the capacity to be perfect. But you won't be because you're not fully able to carry that out according to this passage. Doesn't say you should be dipped in the sewer, by the way. But what it does say is there's a tension, there's a war that's going on. And that redeemed new man, that new woman... And that unredeemed old man and old woman, the parts that are supposed to be put off and the parts that are supposed to be put on, are duking it out in your head. They are wailing on each other. 
And every time your new nature says, I am redeemed of the Lord, I shouldn't be doing that, your old nature is going, no, you aren't. I'm still here. Look at me. The thoughts you're thinking right now, those aren't from a redeemed person. So why try? Anybody ever have that type of little thing? You don't have to raise your hand. I don't want anybody knowing how bad a sin you are. But you know what I'm saying. You, you got that thing. It goes on right there in your mind. And you're going back and forth. And they are just pounding on each other. And fortunately, as a child of God, most of the time the Spirit's over there. Boom, 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 bam. Knockout. But every once in a while, left hook, you're not looking, and bam. Whoa, why did I do that? You got a smackdown from Satan. Knocked right into that place you didn't want to be, saying the things you didn't want to say and doing the things you didn't want to do. Warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into the captivity of the law which is in my members. Remember, the law has no power over the redeemed person. The penalty of it. You've been freed, praise God, from the bondage of sin and death. Amen? So you're free in that sense. But, but you're like the person who's on probation. You're no longer in prison. You're free to wander around doing whatever you want. But you got some rules still on you. And those rules say this is how you ought to live. Now if you break those rules, right there in your mind, you kind of go right back where you used to be. And all of a sudden now you're in prison, you got guilt. And you have shame. Things that you've been freed from come back because you've entertained those things and you've allowed them back into your life. Verse 24. Oh, wretched man that I am. Now again, I'll get to the argument here in a moment about who I believe this is. Who will deliver me from this body of death. So he asks an extremely deep question. Because he proposes the problem. He says, here's the problem. I've got a war. And he actually admits he's not victorious all the time. Whoever this person is, says the things that I will not to do, those things I do. And the things that I do not wish to do, you get the picture? So what he's saying is, I'm not always victorious. Every once in a while, whoever this is, they mess up. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Here it comes. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's an exclamation, by the way. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I mean, we're going to go on to chapter 8 and we're going to get the blessing of all blessings. But he begins to postulate the answer right here. He says, I thank God. I thank God 
You see, if it were not for Jesus Christ, my Lord, I couldn't thank God. I wouldn't thank God. I wouldn't even want to thank God. I wouldn't even know about God because He first loved me. While I was still sinning, Christ died for me. I wasn't looking for Him. He was looking for me. I was the one lost sheep. Praise God. Thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind... I myself serve the law of God. And the law can't save. In your mind, we try and balance those things, don't we? And in the law, don't we try and say, well, I'm better than him, I'm better than her. I do this, I do that, so naturally I must be kind of, sort of, where I'm supposed to be. But with the flesh, the law of sin. And so in the midst of this argument lies lies a place that the church has been haggling for 2,000 years. For as long as the church has known of this text, been haggling over who this is. And as you look at it, there are a number of things that we can put into uh, view for us tonight. And there are really a couple of questions that if you get those right, you'll answer the, the third question, which comes from those two questions almost instantaneously. You see, one person would ask, uh, is, this, is this person being described here someone that is being described before they actually got saved? That's question one. The second question is, when you start to think about it, is he speaking uh, simply in a literary device? Is he just trying to make a point by using all these personal pronouns? But as you begin to unravel this, for people who think that this is about an unbeliever, they point that he's of the flesh and sold into bondage, and he's a wretched man, and he has a body of death. And so you could kind of argue at that point, uh, if someone's died to sin, would they actually be struggling that way? But the other side of the argument is this. This person hates doing what is evil. Hates it. Give you a little secret. You don't hate doing sin when you're not saved. You love sin when you're not saved. Matter of fact, you're really comfortable. You're actually pretty good at sinning when you don't know the Lord. Some people who are saved still are unfortunately better than they should be at sinning. This person is humble before God. I've never met an unbeliever that's humble about their relationship with the God they don't believe in. This person actually realizes that in them dwells no good thing. That inside of there, there's still the capacity for some evil. The other thing that's beautiful is he sees the sin. This person sees the sin... But he also praises God that that's not, not all there is of him. It's not the end. You see, it's really easy, I think, to, to make the conclusion along with that and the fact that these personal pronouns are used so heavily uh, in this passage. When you start to think about it, an unbeliever not only hates God's truth, but actually tries to suppress it. That's what chapter 1 says, right? They suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. This person is not suppressing the truth of God. 
They're extolling the truth of God. There's a war going on. The unsaved person doesn't give thanks to God. They usually damn God. They frequently blaspheme his holy name. Normally someone who's not saved just arrogantly says, I don't really care what your Bible says. This person obviously cares what God thinks. So when you start putting all these things together, I believe that this person being described is not only a believer, but is an extremely mature believer. And that would certainly fit the Apostle Paul. Because of the way this person is describing the, the war that's going on, there is an honesty to the way they have measured their own self. To use a literary device with this many personal pronouns is almost laughable. It's one of those things, I don't personally know how anybody could do that. Looking at the original text, it's extremely clear that this person is using the context of what has previously been said as a sounding board. Even in chapter 6, Paul's been uh, indicating that some believers are continually battling sin in their lives. And so the level of spiritual insight, the brokenness, the contrition, the humility, all these things, that's what happens as you grow in Christ. You you, you see, if you look at the, the whole passage, there's actually 46 personal pronouns in there. And so I believe you have a very mature Apostle Paul who's saying, Family of God, I'm in this with you. There are times when I have issues. Now, I'm not trying to tell you that I know what Paul's secret sins were. Because I'll tell you why. I got enough of my own. We're going to be talking about that on this Sunday. Ways to keep busy so that you walk with the Lord in an easier fashion. You you see, I'm concerned about myself first. Now, I hope you are too. You know what it solves? It solves pulling twigs out of other people's eyes when you got a plank in your own. It solves straining out gnats when you're trying to choke down a camel. It keeps you from being not only the source of gossip, but a talebearer. It keeps you from being a busybody. It keeps you in that place of humility before the Lord, recognizing that you yourself got enough of your own junk to keep you busy the rest of your life. And I think if more of the body of Christ would focus on their own problems instead of on other people's problems, we'd all get along a little better. Amen? You see, I believe this absolutely must be a believer, and I absolutely what what we have here is is the marks of maturity. You see, back in chapter 6, Paul admonished us there in verses 12 and 13, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust, and do not go on presenting your members of your body as instruments of sin and unrighteousness. But what he's talking about there is is our, our capacity and how we give ourselves over. And what we do in those moments of weakness, 
He's saying, just don't do it. It's not wise. It's not good for you. It can put you in a bad place. But a mature Christian realizes exactly how far we've still got to go. One of the things that I can tell you, having spent a long time in ministry, is I have heard some really agonizing stories come out of some of the most godly homes that you could possibly imagine. People whom I know love the Lord. People whom I have absolute, utter confidence in, we will see them in heaven. People who have dedicated their lives oftentimes to decades of ministry that has succumbed to this very thing. And I'm forced to deal with, in my mind, two opposing viewpoints. One is, that person was never saved. The other is, that's the person that Paul's describing right here. Because that's really the only two options. Let me tell you a little something. You're either a believer or an unbeliever. You are a sheep or a goat. You're a saint or an ain't. You're in or you're out. You're heaven or hell. You're narrow or broad. You can't be on both roads. I have seen broken husbands. I have seen broken wives. I have seen broken kids. I have had people on a heap, in a heap on the floor of my office, bawling because they have destroyed their marriage. I have listened to story after story of pastors who have succumbed to drug abuse, of people who you would almost have to believe that maybe they have somehow lost their mind. But for me, that makes this a glass half full passage. This gives me hope. This brings me to that place of recognizing in my life, your life, our lives, we have work to do while we're still here. And we all got room to grow. And we should be helping each other to that end. Not condemning one another and making one another feel like there's no hope. Because Satan does enough of that. Amen? There is power in the name of Jesus. He can set you free. You see, sin still clings to the humanness of all of us. When you think about what your Bible says about real believers, of course we're sensitive to sin. Ephesians 4 tells us sin grieves the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us it dishonors the Lord. 1 Peter 3 reminds us it keeps our prayers from being answered by God. 1 Corinthians 9 tells us it makes us powerless in the kingdom. I mean, there's lots of reasons to believe that we should have zero sin in our lives. And the Bible's filled with them. We're sensitive to, to God's rules and regulations for our lives, just as Jeremiah said, because it causes God to withhold good things from us. I want God's good things. So, so there are some reasons for us to be as sinless as we absolutely can possibly be, and we should be striving to that in every single day.
It pollutes our fellowship, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us. But I want to show you something. When you take verses 7 through 13, every verb there is past tense. 100% of them. And I believe it is there that Paul turns the corner. He's talking about his previous life, what he was without Christ. But by the time you get to verse 14, guess what tense every single verb is in? They are all in the present tense. Every last one of them. They're present tense, and oh, furthermore, they're active. They're present tense, active verbs. So I believe right now, today, this day, that battle rages for all of us. There are four things that I think we battle with, and I believe we can cover them in a remaining time. Verses 14 to 17, let's take it as a whole. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am flesh, sold into the bondage to sin. For that which I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I'd like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. But if I do the very thing which I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, because the law stimulates sin in us, right? Confessing that which is good. So now no longer am I the one who is doing it, but sin that indwells me. It's a new living translation. You, you see this picture of this first battle. We know the law is spiritual. There's a conjunction here. It says for. It carries the idea of because. For we know because the law is spiritual. He affirms the law is good. It's spiritual. It, it, is, it is still great guidance. It's still perfect. Jesus didn't come to erase it. He came to fulfill it. Amen? The law is good. It's never been bad. But you see, people make the next step and they think the law can save. Though the law of God is good, so good that the law itself is perfect it's still unable to save you. The law can't do that. It has always been impossible for the legalist to make themselves right with God. You can't do it. Because your motivation will be wrong. Your implementation will be wrong. Your stimulation will be wrong and every other Asian word you can come up with. You're going to have issues every time you try and keep the law. Because no matter how perfectly you might do it, it will eventually come down to the attitude of why you're trying to do it. And we know what happened to Satan. It was so that he could exalt himself above God's throne. So ultimately, keeping the law makes you become your own God. Look, I can do it myself. So the law can't save. So though the law is good, we have a general condition that keeps us from being able to even entertain the thought of keeping it. We're mortal. We're earthbound, we're fleshly, we're carnal, we have bodily appetites, we have bodily desires, we have drives, we have temptations that still tempt us. 
I don't know what yours are. I hate 55. I'm going to get a bumper sticker. My brother is in the California Highway Patrol. I still hate 55. Just thank God he hasn't arrested me. And I'm not saying I speed all the time. I try and do my best. But there are times I'm just like, why would anyone ever make this dumb law? This is the most idiotic thing. Anybody else ever drive out across? You're on your way up the eastern Sierras, and you're out in the middle of the desert, and you're going, who made this stupid law? And then pretty soon you're like, nobody's looking. There's nobody out here. Isn't anybody really going to care? Then the big one, they're all driving that fast. I'm trying to show you exactly how wicked your little black hearts are. They're wicked. And you think through those things, you make all your justifications, the reason why you're exempt, the reason why you'll be exonerated, doesn't apply to you. Because we're trapped in a mortal body, amen? And your body's at war with what you know you should be doing. Yeah, we should be honoring those who God has placed over us. I'm still praying for that law to get changed. But it hasn't been changed yet, so i got to battle. The law's good, but my flesh hates it. My flesh rebels against the law. Because my flesh wants to be in charge. So when you tell my flesh no, you know what my flesh says? Oh yeah? Well, I'm not going to do that. And then the Spirit of God comes upon you, oh yes you are. And that's where you win that battle. The Spirit of God overcomes your flesh and boom, takes care of it. So you slow down, you back off, and you watch the other guys going faster and you get the ticket. Then you go, thank you Lord, you spoke to me. Can I still drive faster, though? <laughs> you see, the apostle's going to confess, look, that in me there dwells no good thing that is in my flesh. And so my mind is sorting through all the details, and you've got the law in there, which is good, and the law is trying to filter all those thoughts and say, hey, you really shouldn't do that, shouldn't say that, shouldn't go there, shouldn't do that. See, the law is doing all that. It's doing its job. But then it does what we just saw. It stimulates the rebellion. Like, who cares? I mean, everybody does this. I know that bacon will kill me. I know it. I look at it. I see the grease on the edge of the plate. And I'm going, that's not supposed to be in your arteries. But it tastes good. Why did God invent it if you're not supposed to eat this? I mean, Peter probably had bacon. (laughs) See, you all got the same exact problem, so don't get all up here with me. You know what I'm saying? You know better. You even know why God said it. And you go, yeah, but I'm under grace, man. I'm under cardiac grace right now. Yeah, I want to suck back some pie with that bacon right there. 
bacon wrap bacon. A bacon weave. I'm going to bacon everything. See, here's the problem. We're no longer of our father, the devil. He's not in control. But that doesn't mean that the new man has full reign in everything either. Because the old man's still hanging around looking for those little beachheads, those little inroads, those places where he can say, oh, yeah, well, you're not watching that spot, so I'm back. That lingering part of our unredeemed humanness is still sinful, and consequently there's a war that's still going on. Now you're no longer sin's prisoner, praise the Lord. But there's still a few of those little enemy combatants running around in your life. Those little things that you know about, God knows about. Doesn't mean that you're part saved. It doesn't mean that you're totally, you know, without capacity to withstand those things. It simply means that they're there. And if you're not careful, if I'm not careful, we're not careful... That old nature rises up and you kind of let it get a little bit comfortable in your life and boom, you do the things you will not to do. Be careful. 1 John 1 says it this way in verses 8 through 10. For if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. John was also a believer, writing to believers. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. That doesn't just pertain to your salvation experience. That pertains to your walk. What you are after you get saved. Yes, it's true, you need to repent of your sin to be saved. But you need to keep repenting of your sin to be cleansed. Get your relationship, your vertical relationship with God is affected by sin. You're still going to go to heaven. But God's saying, you know, maybe you need to kind of chill a little bit. Bottom line. We still had a little bit of dirt on us. A second battle. For I know that, verse 18 says, nothing good dwells in me. Now he's using some words here that I think are super important for us to understand. He's not saying we have an incapacity to do good or to even be good. He's just saying if you look inside of it, here's a way to understand it. If we make a batch of cookies, anybody in here like peanut butter cookies? I love peanut butter cookies. Just saying. If you make good peanut butter cookies, one of the things you don't want to put in there is rat poison. So no matter how much strychnine you put in your cookies, whether it's a little or a lot, you're going to kill somebody. So as a believer, you have a little bit of strychnine still in your cookies. They're still a little poisoned. They're a little tainted. 
Now, by the Spirit of God, that amount is being pushed out, and by the Spirit of God, one day you're going to be a perfectly pure peanut butter cookie and you're going to go to heaven. In the meantime, you're being what we call sanctified, being made saintly like Christ. And so that strychnine's being pushed out of your peanut butter cookie to where there's less and less and less and less of the rat poison and more and more and more of the spirit of the living God. But while you're still here, a little bit of rat poison with your peanut butter cookie. It's your second battle. That is, in my flesh, wishing is present within me. I really would like to have zero strychnine in my peanut butter cookies. But the doing of that good is not. In other words, my ability to go through and ferret out every last molecule of strychnine in the cookie, I can't quite do that. Because it's resident in the fibers of my old man's being, whom I still dwell in that body of sin. So, in that level, you could go around, it's like, well, I'm going to pull out this molecule, and I'm going to take out that molecule, and I'm going to pull, there's a couple of spare atoms over here, and oh, boy, I got some quasars and quarks over here. We're going to go to the subatomic levels, they're pulling stuff out. You're going to be polluted until one day, into the presence of the Lord you go, with a fully redeemed body completely in the image of your maker in the meantime a little bit of a war going on a little chemistry happening with you for the good that I wish I do not do but the practice of the very evil that I wish to not to do but if I'm doing the very thing which I do not wish I'm no longer doing it but the sin that dwells in me you see there's still a little bit of strychnine in there And no matter what you do, that's still going to be there. Now, praise God by His grace and by the power of the Spirit. As believers, though we are not sinless, we absolutely should be sinning less and less and less and less and less. And when you go home to be with the Lord Jesus, there should be a whole lot less to clean up than when you first got saved. Amen? Hallelujah. No matter what Paul did, his deeds would still be tainted because he lives in a strychnine-tainted peanut butter cookie. Helps you understand. Helps you lay hold of it. The problem uh, back in chapter 6 is how can I stop doing bad things? The problem here is how can I do anything good? Because I'm tainted. Any of you ever started to do good things only to mess it up with a bad attitude? Don't raise your hands. You know what I'm saying, don't you? You've got a good idea, you want to do a good thing, but you cop a lousy attitude about how you're going to get it done. Well, people don't appreciate me. And before you know it, the good thing that you start out to do has now turned into you're just a real piece of work. That's that sin that dwells in you. It can mess up even the best of intentions at times if we're not solidly keeping our eyes on Jesus. 
You see, the legalist says, obey the law and you'll do good, and you'll do good in life. But that's completely false. Because doing good for the wrong reason is doing bad. You see, the law only reveals, it arouses that sin. Shows us how sinful sin actually is, as we saw last time. Rules and regulations can't fix what ails us. Only the redeeming blood of the Lamb can do that. And one day we get the full effect of that. Until then, lighten up on yourselves a little bit. Don't ever dumb down God's law. Don't ever think for a moment that he doesn't mean what he says and says what he means. But when you miss it, be quick to go to the cross. Be quick to take a grace bath. Be quick to seek his forgiveness and his cleansing. The third battle, and it is so like the second. It's actually like the first two, but it's really like the second. The the problem with this internal sin nature is it's being put to death on a daily basis. I I have to kill the old man every last day. Because when I get up, he was sleeping. He's nice and fresh. You ever have that? You wake up and you want to go do good. and I'm going to go do my devotions. Then you look out and your dogs have torn something up in the yard, and you cop a lousy attitude, and it's like, ah, I can't believe this happened. And then somebody says something, yeah, well, I don't really care, you know. You just... That's why that old axiom, (laughs) the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Then I find the principle that evil is present within me. The one who wishes to do good, for I joyfully concur that the law of God is in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body. Oh, yes, amen. Waging war against the law of my mind. It's in there. I know it's in there. I can even quote it chapter and verse. I can tell you where it's at. But that guy right there. Cuts you off. You're like, I got 355 horses underneath here. You're like, yeah, Ben, don't laugh. (laughs) We have the same truck. The guy can cut in the next. He's not getting in this lane. You pull up beside him. You know what I'm saying? That ain't Jesus driving, okay? That'd be the old man's behind the wheel. Problem's internal, isn't it? Truck doesn't drive itself. You got a choice. And you do not choose wisely, Padawan Learner. can see you all struggle with the same thing. You're making me giggle. Half full. We're getting three quarters full now. You see, here's the, the end to this. The, the fourth, the final part of this battle. And Paul's final lament, if you will. Oh, wretched man that I am. He sees himself for who he really is. 
And this is where I want to shift and I want to make sure that you understand what I believe is being said here and what I, I think I can adequately defend. He's making an admission that we all should make. That we're wretched. And the more you know that, he uses the, the word uh, to be set free. Who will set me free from this body of death? It's ruhomai. And, and that particular word is, is the idea of being rescued from danger. It's not just like set free. It's like the team comes in, you are going to die, and, and the, they send an extradition team to come pull you out of where you are and take you someplace where you're not going to die. It's not kind of sort of messing around with it. It's look like you're dead. God sends somebody to save you. Who will set me free? He tells us who that who is. Thank God it's Jesus. Amen? So he tells us the who. But he uses a very specific analogy that we don't actually understand in our day and time. He says, who will rescue me from this body of death? And he uses an illusion that they would have understood because he was from Tarsus. And there were two tribes in the region of Tarsus who did something very despicable for capital crimes. If someone was convicted of murder, they took the dead man's body, the person who was killed, and they lashed that dead body to the live criminal. The live criminal would then be forced to live with that dead body until the dead body killed the live criminal. Now do you see it? Who will set me free from this body of death? You as a believer are still lashed to the dead body. It's called your sin nature. It's the old man. It's that part you got from Adam that you can all slap him when you get there. Don't slap Adam. He, he would have done the same thing. But that body is lashed to you. Somebody has to cut that body off. Otherwise, you're going to die from it. Praise God, Jesus Christ has cut that dead body off of you. And now all you got is a few little sores and little couple of pieces of strychnine. You got some old grave clothes hanging off of you. You got a few things that are still there that can identify you as having been once tied to that dead body and it was going to kill you. But praise God, you've been set free. Oh, praise God, you've been set free. I've been set free from that body of death. Thanks be to God for that. You see, it doubtless seemed like it was going to be an eternity. Can you imagine the horror of a decaying body being tied to you? And as that body decayed, you rotted away with it. I know that's rather graphic, but it is a perfect picture of what has happened to you. That was you. That was me. You had some capacity to do good. I have some capacity to do good. But I also had some capacity to do evil. And before, I listened to the dead man. 
And Jesus Christ comes along at the cross and he says, cut that dead man off. Kill death. Put death to death, in other words. And he does that for us. And he sets us free. And he who the Son has set free is free indeed. Amen? So he sets us free from that dead man. And now he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I want you to test and see that the Lord is good. I want you to walk in the Spirit and thereby not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I don't want you putting more poison in your life. I want you to continually look for those places underneath those rocks of your life, those little areas, those little corners where you know there's still some stuff, and when you see it, you pull it out. But when you stumble and fall, Jeff, I want you to know something. My grace is sufficient for you. And I love you. You're my son. And I forgive you. I want you to stop doing what you're doing. The words of the woman caught in adultery are spoken to us every day, brothers and sisters. Oh, no, I I don't condemn you. But sister, brother, go and sin no more. Don't, Don't tie a new arm onto your leg. Don't take any more poison. You let that stuff go. You see, the legalist becomes a Pharisee, thinking they can do it themselves. The child of God becomes a beggar of the mercy of God. Oh, God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. The Apostle Paul Case in point. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thank the Lord Jesus Christ. He is able. Amen? Would you stand with me? I'm going to ask the pastors to come forward right now. And and I honestly believe that there are people here tonight. Hey, you've been struggling. I believe there are people here tonight, and you you may even think that God hates you. I, I believe there are people here tonight that had the wrong view of this passage. And maybe you thought you need to get saved again and you just realize that you're a child of God and you want to tell somebody about it. I realize that here tonight there are all kinds of burdens. And Jesus made it very clear. He said, take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And maybe your burden has been heavy. You've been tied to a dead man. And you just want to be free. 
As we close in song, we're going to pray right now. You want to pray with somebody, please come forward. Before we do that, would you bow your heads, close your eyes, please? And you got something that's heavy on your heart. And you just want Jesus to free you from it right here, right now, before we leave. Now, I'm not going to know specifically what it is, but you do, and so does God. Actually, I don't need to know. You already know, and so does God. And you want to leave it here tonight. You don't want to take it home with you. Because that which you will to do, you do not do. And that which you will not to do, that you do. That's you. And you want to be free from that tonight. Would you just slip your hand up right now, right where you're at? I see those hands all all over the sanctuary. Just raise your hand just for a moment. Keep them up, please. Just raise your hand. Another moment or two. It takes boldness to be honest with God. It takes bravery to be honest with God. Now, you can keep it. He's not going to make you give it up. But if you want to be free, put your hand up right now. See that hand. Would you, in the quietness of your heart, just pray with me? And you can name your own sin. Whatever is binding you right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blood of the cross. And we recognize that you haven't carried all these sins away for us to pick them up again. And so, Lord, I'm giving you my anger. I'm giving you my bitterness. I'm giving you what's in my heart. And I ask that you take it away. I'm tired of being strapped to a dead man. I don't want it anymore. And I'm asking you to take it away. I'm asking you to cleanse me and to wash me. I'm asking you, God, to clean up my mess. I'm asking you to make me new again. Lord, I thank you that forgiveness is found at the cross. That your blood is sufficient for all my sin. And so as I put these things at your feet, don't let me pick them up again. Give me a healthy fear of those things that have kept me in bondage. Thank you for freeing me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for cleansing me. And we ask these things in the wonderful, the blessed, the holy, the mighty, the glorious name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.